0: It's 1521, and the world is abuzz with exploration. Tall ships from Portugal and Spain whiz around the globe in search of spices, trade routes or slaves, only to discover that the French or the Dutch had beaten them there. From the coasts of America to the misty isles of Indonesia, customs, traditions and even religions were being tossed aside in an effort to assimilate with their powerful new invaders as quickly as possible. But not all were so keen to throw away their way of life. In the middle of a group of islands we now call the philippines lay the tiny island of mactan despite their small population the people of mactan were proud of their traditions and their chieftain lapu-lapu was in no mood to change anytime soon he knew the vague story these spaniards talked of a long time ago someone was killed nailed to a wooden cross and now they worship him lapu-lapu had kept his thoughts to himself when the other chieftains had converted and had held his tongue when they tried to pressure him to do the same. But when their ambassadors arrived on his island, well, that was where he drew the line. Now the time had come to bear the consequences. As the first few rays of dawn sunrise crept across the horizon, he and his band of warriors lined up on the rocky beach of Mactan, watching the Spanish boats row closer and closer. Armed with their shining new muskets and portable cannons, it was clear they were not coming to talk today was the day when they would settle once and for all, whose god was really all-powerful. You're listening to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast telling the stories of national heroes, or sometimes villains, from every country of the world. And this is the story of Lapu-Lapu, the apostate of Mactan. This episode is dedicated to Angel, Maria, and of course, Anna and her lovely family that together made my time in the Philippines so enjoyable. Thanks for showing me around your wonderful country. A few years ago, I was based on the Filipino island of Cebu for work. As I had my weekends free, I thought I'd try my hand at scuba diving, something that was very popular in the area due to the beautiful wildlife and sunken Japanese ships from World War II. One morning, as Sai, my diving instructor, drove me to our dive site, I noticed that the roadside was lined with colourful little orange masks. When I asked what was up with them, Sai told me that they're meant to be Lapu-Lapu, who was a kind of folk hero around the place. Not thinking much more on this, the next weekend I was strolling through Rizal Park when a freak storm caught me off guard and I ducked under the alcove of the nearby anthropology museum. As the strong winds and heavy rain cleared the park of people, a huge bronze statue right in the centre of the park drew my eye. It was a statue of a shirtless man in the traditional Filipino dress. He stood straight up with his hands in front of him, resting on the hilt of a traditional Filipino sword, the point of which stuck into the ground between his feet. Immediately, I knew this must have been Lapu-Lapu again and found out the statue was named the Sentinel of Freedom. I'm not much for believing in fate, but as the Filipino chieftain stood unmoved as the storm shook the trees and flooded the park around him, I knew I had my hero for the Philippines. The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. The story of Lapu-Lapu is not well known in the West, but his rival and the other main character of our story is almost a household name, at least in Spain and Portugal. Ferdinand Magellan was a Portuguese explorer employed by the Spanish king, Charles I, who is best remembered today as the first man to circumnavigate the globe. Magellan's voyage started in 1519 in Seville, Spain. During this time, the territory of the New World had been split into spheres of influence by the Pope. Under what became known as the Treaty of Tordesillas, a line was drawn vertically through the Atlantic Ocean intersecting with the corner of Brazil. Anything to the left of the line belonged to Spain, and anything right belonged to Portugal. This left Spain with almost the whole of the American continent, and Portugal with India, Africa, and the islands of Australasia. If the idea of dividing the entire world up between two European powers seems strange to you, that makes two of us. And the effects of this are still visible today when looking at South America, where almost every country speaks Spanish except for Brazil, which speaks Portuguese. Officially, the goal of the expedition was to find a western route to the Indonesian islands, aka the Spice Islands. At this point in history, the world of culinary cuisine had recently exploded onto the European plate. For the first time ever, people were bedazzling their taste buds with bold new flavours derived from spices that prior to now had almost been impossible to get in Europe. For spices like pepper, cinnamon, cumin, anise and nutmeg, The demands and the prices skyrocketed. But it wasn't all about jazzing up foods. Many of these herbs had medicinal properties that were known, or at least speculated about. Cardamom was said to be a digestive aid that could also fix bad breath, headaches, fevers, and colds. Ginger could help you with your chronic flatulence, stop anemia, improve liver health, and ward off colds. And saffron, the most expensive spice in the world then and now, could be used for so many things, such as a stimulant to wake you up, cure your headaches, reduce your heart palpitations, hold back dropsy, and reduce gastric ulcers. The upper class were willing to pay big bucks to get their hands on these, so if there was a quick way to harvest them, it meant big bucks for the Spanish king and for Magellan. So Magellan set off, and after dealing with a mutiny and sentencing a man to death after catching him in the act of sodomy, He and his five ships made their way down the west coast of Africa and through the Indian Ocean. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, things had not exactly been standing still either. The 7,640 islands that make up the country we now call the Philippines were an incredibly diverse collection of different cultures, languages, and religions. The islands sat on the outer perimeter of many larger empires, and over the millennia, as these empires rose and fell, different islands would retain different elements of that empire, and over time these mixed and shifted into something that would become distinctly Filipino, even though that term didn't exist yet. For example, a blend of Hindu Buddhism had taken hold on the Northern Islands as early as 100 AD, while Islam had become the prominent religion of the Western Islands around 1500 AD, and across all the other islands, all manner of animistic or shamanistic rituals were practiced. You could say there was something for everyone. The technological advancements of the islands, too, were fairly advanced. Martial arts had come over from China, shipbuilding techniques had come from Borneo, and weaponsmithing from Japan. Culturally, the Filipino people would be deemed progressive, even by today's standards. Generally, women held just as many rights as men, if not a little more. They could become heads of state. There was little taboo around them being unmarried. Divorce was common and accepted. In some cases, men even took their wives' names after marriage. Even abortions were nothing too far out of the ordinary. Of course, all of this varied from island to island. Smack bang in the middle of this cultural melting pot lay the island of Cebu, then called Sugbo. History gets a bit murky here, but summarized, the name Sugbo comes from a phrase meaning scorched earth, a reference to a ruler who would periodically have the town burnt down if pirates were sighted in an effort to deny the pirates' plunder. But for the sake of simplicity, I'll be sticking with the modern name of Cebu for this story. When Magellan set off from Spain in 1519, Cebu was ruled by a guy called Humabun, formerly known as Raja Humabun. Humabun's family may have come from Sumatra, but that's about all we know about him. Whoever he was, he ruled over almost the entirety of the island of Cebu, and even had some settlements on neighbouring islands paying tribute to him. But off the southern side of Raja Humabun's domain, lay a small, vocal nuisance, the island of Mactan. Mactan was tiny compared to Cebu, only 65 kilometers squared from coast to coast, but it was ruled by a stubborn local lord known as a Datu, and this Datu's name was Lapu-Lapu. We only have speculative oral history about where he came from or really anything about his early life. No sources are really 100% reliable, with some stating that he had several wives and 11 children others stating that he had just one wife, Balakana, who he loved dearly. Likewise, his lineage is debated, with some saying that he was a native of Mactan, while others saying that he emigrated from Borneo. The latter story goes that Raja Humabun had allowed him to settle on Mactan, but eventually Lapu-Lapu turned to piracy, which damaged the Raja's trading profit. According to this story, this is where the name of the island Mactan comes from, an old translation of the word meaning bandit or, literally, those who lie in wait. Wherever he came from, there was no love lost between Raja Homabun and Datu Lapu Lapu. And when the Spanish sails were sighted on the horizon, the Raja smelled opportunity. Magellan and his crew had an incredibly rough time crossing the Pacific Ocean. Having no concept of just how big it was, they drifted through the endless blue abyss for weeks completely exhausting their supplies of food and water. The journey's chronicler, a man named Pigafetta, unfortunate name, says this of the journey, quote, We ate biscuit which was no longer biscuit, but powder of biscuits, swarming with worms, for they had eaten the good. It stank strongly of urine of rats. We drank yellow water that had been putrid for many days, and often we ate sawdust from boards. Rats were sold for one half ducado apiece, and even then we could not get them. End quote. He then goes on to describe the crew members dying in mass from what we understand now to be vitamin C deficiency. Quote, the gums of both the lower and upper teeth of some of our men swelled so that they could not eat under any circumstances and therefore died. At this point in history, scurvy was not well understood. Even though ships had advanced to handle long sea voyages, the crew members had not. Magellan and the members of his officer corps fared better than their stock standard crew member because part of their rations included quince paves, which contained vitamin C. Not that they understood this. As the crew members chowed down on rats while their teeth fell out, their convoy of ships drifted tantalizingly close to many islands that, in hindsight, we know could have provided fresh water and food but were probably just over the horizon or covered by a cloud and therefore missed. Their last stop before pulling into Cebu was one of the Mariana Islands, where friendly locals paddled out to meet them, boarded their ship and promptly stole everything that wasn't nailed down. So notorious was their thievery that Magellan named the island La Isla de la Drons, the Isle of Thieves. But finally, on the 16th of March 1521, the beleaguered convoy pulled into dock at Cebu. Wanting to make their presence known, Magellan's ships fired all their cannons while entering, scaring the locals. And once they docked, the two cultures met face to face. It's here we introduce our fourth main character. Enrique of Malacca was a slave-turned-interpreter for the expedition. It's not clear exactly where he came from, but it's likely he was a native of either Sumatra, modern-day Indonesia, or Malaysia. Enrique was the name given to him after his capture. Magellan kept Enrique close when he was trying to secure funding for the expedition from the Spanish crown. The physical presence of a native from the island he was trying to find passage towards helped boost credibility of his mission. Though Enrique likely didn't speak the Cebuano language, his native language was much closer related to it than say Spanish was. And from all accounts, he did a terrific job and facilitated almost all communication between the two civilizations. As Enrique introduced Magellan and the crew Raja Humabun was understandably a bit panicked and asked Magellan why he had fired the cannons. Magellan responded that there was no need for concern and that they had only done it to toast the king. I personally have my doubts about this and would bet this was a not so subtle way to flex their military might. Hear that? That one was to celebrate you, but imagine what we could do if it wasn't, right? Remember, the people of Cebu had been in contact with many different nations. Unlike, say, the Aztecs or the Incas, these people had seen Western technology, but a ship of this size, capable of making that much noise, that was probably quite a sight. But just as Magellan was testing the boundaries with his new hosts, the Raja was trying the same. He had tried to charge the Spanish a fee for entering the port. After all, Cebu was a major trading port that had visitors all the time. Who were these men to flout the rules? Well, according to Pigafetta... They were the exception to the rules. Quote, Look well, sire. These men are the same who have conquered Calicut, Malacca, and the India Major. If they are treated well, they will give good treatment. But if they are treated evil, evil and worse treatment as they have done to Calicut and Malacca. Quote. Calicut, Malacca, and India were strategically chosen here. Magellan was banking on the king having heard of what had happened in the surrounding areas. The Rajah apparently took a day to think on this but returned the next day with a good serving of food and wine, telling Magellan that yes, he would like to be friends. Over the next few days, Magellan and his men met many of the Raja's local lords, giving and receiving many gifts and even engaging in a few blood bonds which I can imagine the Pope would not have been too happy about. Blood bonds, known locally as Sanduco, were a way of formalizing alliances between island kingdoms. Both men would make a small cut in their own arm, drip the blood into a goblet, mix it with wine and drink it, sealing their bond of friendship with the essence of life. This act is forever preserved in the flag of Bahol, an island just south of Cebu. It looks like the French flag, but with a very cool blood ritual in the middle. I'll be putting a picture of it on our website and Instagram. After guzzling a bit of blood, Magellan slowly began to push a tradition of his own on the Raja, Christianity. Pigafetta tells us, quote, the captain told them that God made the sky, the earth, the sea, and everything else, and that he had commanded us to honor our fathers and mothers, and that whoever did otherwise was condemned to eternal fire, that we we're all descendants from Adam and Eve, our first parents, that we have an immortal spirit, End quote. I want you to stop for a minute and think how nonsensical this would have sounded to people for the first time. I mean, this story is complicated enough for us in Western cultures. Imagine having this explained to you by someone who only spoke about one-third of your language. I'm imagining a bunch of very confused-looking tribal captains raising their eyebrows at each other while Enrique gesticulates dramatically with Magellan and the others nodding along encouragingly. But after the gifts of beautiful silks, weaponry, promises of alliance and eternal salvation, Raja Homabun and his captains agree to become Christians. In thanks, Magellan gives the Raja a big old hug and tells him that because he was the first to convert, he will make him the most powerful chief in the area. He then sets up a large wooden cross in the main square of Cebu. He tells the Raja that, as Christians, they need to worship this cross daily and burn any idols they may have worshipped in the past, because that was sinful. Mass baptisms take place with around 500 new converts lining up to accept the faith. The Raja, his son, and his wife are all given new names more acceptable to the Christian faith. But for the sake of simplicity, I'll stick to their original names for this episode. The Raja's wife was so overwhelmed with joy that she wept after being gifted a small wooden idol of Jesus adorned in the clothes of a king, known as the Santa Niño. Remember this doll because it'll be on the test later. After the Christian ceremonies had taken place, we have a first-hand account of a distinctively mm, Cebuano one. The description is a sexually graphic, so any kiddies listening, maybe skip ahead one minute or so. According to our friend Pigafetta, after a large feast in which a pig is slaughtered, the men walk around with nothing but a palm leaf covering their groin. Underneath the palm leaf, they have their dicks pierced with a gigantic bolt about the size of a pinky finger. On each end of the piercing is a kind of spur, so that during sex, if the penis is inserted when it's soft, Once the man gets hard enough, the spur will prevent him from being able to pull out, or for the other participant to run away. Be aware, this ceremony was noted by a Spaniard foot soldier for a Spanish king, with a vested interest in painting these people as savages, so take it with a grain of salt. But anyway, it wasn't all dick piercings and sunshine though. Two mainland settlements had refused to convert, so Magellan and the Spaniards made short work of them. The villages were burnt to the ground, with its citizens butchered like animals. The Raja was certainly making use of his new Spanish friends, and Magellan was certainly being lulled into a false sense of security about how easy these people were to subdue. With all of Cebu now under the joint control of the Raja and Magellan, all that remained was Mactan. A minor chief arrived with two goats for Magellan as tribute, saying that he had wanted to provide more but Datu-Lapu-Lapu had forbidden it. And that was all the reason Magellan needed for war. At first light on Saturday, April 27th, 1521, Magellan and 60 Spaniards boarded their canoes and headed to Mactan. Meeting them halfway, Lapu-Lapu's messenger told Magellan that the Datu would submit to the authority of Spain but not to that of Rajah Humabun. But this wasn't good enough. Magellan wanted to make the Raja a shining example to other chieftains, an example of all the benefits that came from being a friend of Spain. And so, as dawn broke, Magellan and his Spaniards unloaded into the water of the small tropical island. They'd brought a cannon with them, which they were hoping to frighten Lapu-Lapu's men with, but they had not anticipated the sharp rocky reef that surrounded Mactan. There was no suitable ground to unload it. The Spaniards waded into the water and almost immediately found themselves in a kind of medieval D-Day landing. From the village on shore came 1,500 of Lapu-Lapu's finest. Armed with sharpened cane, spears and iron-tipped lances, they swarmed the invaders. Screaming and hooting, fearsomely tattooed and covered in piercings, the warriors charged into the sea to meet their European invaders. Magellan now realized the gravity of the situation he was in and ordered his men to form up. And from the Spanish lines came volley after volley of bullets and crossbow bolts. The powerful bolts punched right through the defenders wooden shields while the bullets ripped through them en masse. The defenders shrieked in pain and keeled over as the clear blue water slowly turned into a ruddy red mess. The advance slowed with many ducking behind their shields or trying to submerge themselves in water to avoid the next round. But before long All the Spaniard's gunpowder was soaking wet and they had run out of crossbow bolts. Other boats had also arrived with reinforcements, but either because they were struggling to find a suitable landing spot or because they could see the way this fight was looking, they stayed where they were. With the battle temporarily stalled, Magellan seized the initiative and directed a few men on shore to start burning the huts down and killing anyone they found. By doing this, he hoped that the natives would scatter in an attempt to protect their livelihood But it did just the opposite. As their property and family were put to the torch on shore, the men of Mactan surged forward in a blind rage, picking up any spears left in the water and hurling them again at the Spanish. As the Spanish gave more and more ground, the water crept up to their chest and it became much harder for them to manoeuvre. With the heavy plate armour, they could barely turn around, much less swing a sword. Magellan yelled to his men to stand firm, but just as he did so, his arm was slashed as he fought hand to hand with a native that may have been Lapu Lapu himself. Freeing himself from the engagement, he went to draw a sword, but struggled to pull it from its scabbard. Seeing weakness, the men of the Philippines swarmed him. One bashed off his iron helmet, which he feverishly pulled back on. But as he did so, another slashed his leg open, and as he fell to his knees, he was stabbed to death by many who recognized him as the captain of the entire voyage. Seeing their benevolent captain killed, any sense of order broke down as the remaining Spaniards jettisoned armour, weaponry and anything else swimming back to the safety of the boats. As the midsummer morning rose across the horizon, the body of Magellan, the man who had almost circumnavigated the globe, lay face down in the murky brown waters of Mactan. I think Peter Marta, one of our sources from the 16th century, summarised this moment perfectly, stating, Thus did the brave Portuguese Magellan satisfy his craving for spices. The Battle of Mactan is a strange one. Despite its obscurity, it remains one of the few losses on Spain's efforts of colonization in the New World. To lose a battle to a native population was rare, but to have the captain of the expedition killed, that was almost unheard of. Far from home and now without a leader, things began to unravel for the Spaniards. Having completely lost their upper hand on the bargaining table, the expedition promised all manner of gold or trinkets to Lapu-Lapu if he would return the body of Magellan. But he refused, telling them he would be keeping the explorer's body as a souvenir. Meanwhile, the group's translator, Enrique, had been promised freedom upon the death of his master, but the remaining Spaniards now refused to allow it, as they had no way of communicating without him. Furious at this betrayal, Enrique began plotting against the Spanish. Things get murky here with the source material, but it seems like Enrique told Raja Humabun that the Spanish were planning to take over Cebu, ousting him completely. Probably not a bad call. Whatever he said, the Raja took it seriously, and under the guise of a feast, he had a large group of the troops poisoned or murdered during dinner. Very Game of Thronesy indeed. With their leader butchered and tens of their soldiers murdered at the hands of their hosts, it's fair to say the Spanish had overstayed their welcome in the Philippines and they got the hell out of there as soon as they could. They had so few men left, they didn't have enough crew to man the ships they arrived with and were forced to burn a few of them. But the show had to go on, and on the 8th of November, they arrived at the much-anticipated Spice Islands of Indonesia, proving definitively that the Earth was round and confirming the existence of a western route to Indonesia. The expedition would eventually make it back home to Seville, almost three years later to the day, Of the 277 men that had been on the original expedition, 18 returned. The expedition, though costly in terms of human life, had been a success. The Spanish Empire could finally get its grubby paws on the lucrative spice trade with the Pope's blessing. We've only got rumours of what happened to the rest of our main characters, but the consensus is that, after taking his freedom back by force, Enrique made his way back to his homeland and disappeared from the historical record, quite possibly as the first person in history to complete a full circumnavigation of the world. Raja Humabun and Lapu-Lapu buried the hatchet and eventually came to an alliance that benefited both of them. Some say that Lapu-Lapu made his way back to his home island like Enrique. Others say that he lived on a mountain for the rest of his life, while an urban legend says that he turned to stone to guard Mactan forevermore. But Lapu-Lapu and Raja Humabun had only delayed colonization. Cebu was perfectly located as a stopover point between the Spice Islands. It was valuable real estate. So, 44 years later, the Spanish returned, and this time, local resistance was easily crushed. The coastal towns of Cebu were razed to the ground. But, while peeking through the ruins of a burnt-out house, a soldier found something. A small pine box. Inside of it lay the Santa Niño the child Jesus doll that had been given to Raja Humabun's wife as a present during her baptism. The survival of this relic in near-perfect condition was hailed as a divine miracle by the Spanish troops then and by Filipino Catholics of today. The doll now occupies a permanent space in the Basilica de Santo Niño in the center of Cebu. It's said to have miraculous powers and any time throughout the day there is a cue to say a quick prayer to the doll that is now protected by thick bulletproof glass. Flowers, money, and trinkets are left as offerings to it. I lined up for 30 minutes to have a quick look. You're not allowed to take photos of it, but I'm adding one I found online to our website. Without trying to be disrespectful, I found it a little creepy. I got a kind of slappy from Goosebumps vibe from it, but still very interesting and worth a look. Magellan's cross still stands in central Cebu, but its legitimacy as the original cross that the Explorer personally planted is doubtful. The official story is that the original cross is inside the new cross because the original cross was chipped away by worshippers who wanted a piece of it as a good luck amulet. But others suspect that none of the original cross was left by the time the Spanish returned and that this is a modern reproduction. As for the man of the show, Lapu-Lapu, his legacy is immense within the Philippines. For someone we know so little definitively about, his symbolism as the original defender of Filipino liberty is a powerful one, which, in the minds of the Filipino people, more than make up for the lack of hard data. And from my time in Cebu, I can concur. During my stay there, I got a slightly addicted to the iPhone app, Mobile Legends Bang Bang, a kind of Dota League of Legends type game. And there he was again, Lapu Lapu, the great chief as a playable character. And every year on April 27th, it's Lapu Lapu Day where all around the Philippines, colourful and dramatic reenactments of the battle between the chieftain and Magellan are held, complete with costumes, music and dancing. Usually the president and many other state officials even attend. It's a big deal. I'll be uploading some footage from the ceremony on our Instagram page. But it doesn't stop there. If you ever take a look at a policeman or fireman's badge, once again you'll see the great chief's outline displayed boldly in the centre. I'll take us out with a quote from the Filipino historian Jose Amiel and quote, Every Filipino school child knows the local chieftain Lapu-Lapu who defeated a small force of Europeans under the command of the famous Portuguese explorer and conquistador. The battle has entered into the canon of Philippine history and indeed is etched in the Philippine national consciousness. Thanks for listening to Anthology of Heroes. If you've just stumbled across this episode researching Lapu-Lapu, Why not subscribe and learn about all manner of heroes from across our vast world? We're active on social media, but particularly on Instagram and on our website, where you'll find supporting pictures, video, and now, the sources we use to research this episode and upcoming information for future episodes. You can get to these by clicking the link in the podcast show notes or just searching our show name in Google. As always, I'd certainly love your feedback. If you're enjoying the show, I'd certainly appreciate that iTunes review as it helps the podcast reach wider audiences because iTunes will recommend it to others. But overall, the best thing you can do is keep listening. And for that, I'm eternally thankful to all my listeners, old and new. Take care and see you on the next one. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.